Today's reading again is from Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weak child with his mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Thank you, Jamie. Asking people to read that song was easy. It was so short. And no odd words, too. Kids are invited to Kids Church in the Library. And thank you to Susan, who's probably already back there. This is her first time doing it. So this is uh, exciting to have another teacher back there. And other teachers get a break. And the new teacher will step up to fill the hole. So she can't hear me. I'll thank her after the service. But you guys can thank her, too. So this is our ninth sermon, in, or ninth sermon, 12th psalm in the psalm of Ascent. We have two, three psalms left, two sermons left before we finish this and sort of go into Advent. And so we've been slowly sort of going through the psalms that, that the pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem, that they would express sort of their hope in God. And last week, we were in the depths. One of the things I proposed on why, as they got closer to Jerusalem, that, this, that these songs were sang along the way, is that they were in the depths because they got to the proximity of holiness, of nearness to God, that makes you realize, whoa, I'm a person, a man, a woman, of unclean lips. That as you set out for beauty, as you set out for truth, as you set out for goodness, as you set out for the place where God resides, in this case Zion or Jerusalem, depending on the psalm, you... Um, have joy, you have hope, you're moving in that place. But if there becomes a place along the journey, I think sometimes, where you say, what am I to do with the messes I've made? What am I to do with the struggles that have come in life? What am I to do with, with this sin that weighs on me the closer I get to this truth? And so Psalm 130 last week talked about, I'm in the depths. I'm in this place. But that surely God forgives, and surely will rise like the sun in the morning. That we await and hope that. And this psalm for today moves to this nearness after that. It moves to this being close to this one. Now this is this is probably one of my favorite quotes after I read it. Is psalm 31 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I think that's true as, as I was praying through it this week and I was thinking through it is that it's a it is very short uh, you could memorize it very fast I think there's a couple songs that are three verses and this is one of them but it takes a long time it takes a lifetime to learn what this psalm is teaching what this psalm is sort of laying out because this psalm I think is about sort of a character of faith that goes beyond one of the one of the ways that that I'm I think about this is, is there's a couple of these psalms where it starts in with one person and then they speak to the many. So this psalm here starts with this one person describing how their faith has been, how their faith walk, how their journey has been. And what they do at the end is they say, hope is for all of us. Turn and hope in this way. That's why the church and the synagogue, I think, have practiced long times this notion of testimony, of speaking how God has been there for you. Now, one of the things, this is a 
side note that unfortunately popped in my head at this moment, is too much testimony in the modern world is um, I was really bad and then I got saved and that's it. Whereas this psalm speaks of here is how I lived my faith in relationship to this one. There's room for the testimony that says, look, I was an alcoholic and then I got saved, and it ends there because there's this way of which it recovers life, but there's also a way in which, like, okay, so you gave us 20 minutes of interesting sin, uh, which I'm always wondering, like, oh, keep going. This is interesting when it's on the dark part. And then when you get to the safe part, it just sort of resolves. And it's like, well, that should be more interesting. That should have some truth to it as well. That should, that should be something that we can speak to that, that magnifies. And, and this is, if you've ever given a testimony, and I've been privileged to do it many a times, but I started to recently change it to the positive one. And it's, it's got its own trials, but it's got its own gifts. To tell your story, not just in Psalm 130, I was in the depths and here's how God raised me out. There's a place for that. But to also tell it in a way that says, Here's where I've gone with this God. Here's what trust and relationship looks like with this God. Here's how this God has saved me in the daily life after that. Um, and so this, this testimony that this one psalm speaks is sort of um, exhorted to the rest. He, he sort of sets this out for the rest. Now this psalm, I think, has its... Um, I'm trying to think of where to go next. We'll jump to this. Uh, these are two, uh, I think, pretty horrible poems, um, but that's up for you to decide. The one on the right, I knew that the print on this would be small, is the classic footprints poem, or most people are familiar with that, is that I was walking on the beach and um, I noticed two sets of footprints and, uh, and then there was one sometimes and I asked God what happened during the one time and it's God who carried you, right? That's the classic sort of footprint poems. The other one, and I'm sure some people are familiar with, is the butt prints in the sand poem, which is also, I think, <laughs> not great either. People are probably less familiar with this one. Um, God, at some point, the, the, the person says, um, I, I saw these, uh, what we have here, this print is too large and round and neat, but the Lord is too big for my feet. My child, he said in somber tone, for miles I carry you alone. I challenge you to seek my face, take up your cross and walk in grace. You disobeyed, you would not grow, you would not stand against the flow. Your neck was stiff, your ears were shut. So there I dropped you on your butt. <laughs> because in life there comes a time when one must stand up, one must climb, one must rise up and take a stand, or leave one butt prints in the sand. Um, I think both of these are equally not great poems or um, suggestions of the Christian life, but I think, um, this psalm is there to sort of guard us between the two of these tensions, right? The first is, um, the second one has maybe this too high of an ownership and that like, okay, I can do this alone, right? Like, God is going to drop me on my butt because he needs me to be self-sufficient, right? It seems a little too high um, for me sometimes. And then the notion of God carrying us, which is embedded in the psalm. I mean, if I had to pick one, footprint seems to have more truth to it as much as I don't like it. Um, that, that song, as often parody contains less truth. So butt prints being a parody might bring out a point, but it contains less truth than the other one. And this is a great sermon because I've said butt prints like five times. <laughs> and it's all within context, so it's fine. Um, but what I think this song guards us from is sort of that ambition and that infant-like dependency. 
Because what it says is the child is like, is this weaned child? And so we have this notion in which we can be proud, in which we can sort of self-assert, in which we can sort of go like our own ways. The psalmist rejects that in the first three lines. And then we have these ways in which we can sort of cling to God in this infant-like dependency. And, what, and this is where Paul, later in the, in the Bible, in Hebrews, will talk about, like, you guys are still on milk when you should be moving towards meat. That you should be maturing up in the faith with God. That it's not for you to nurse forever, but it's for you to become a person, to be alongside with God. Um, and I think this psalm helps us to sort of see and guard in those two ways. But I think it's a psalm of faith. This is um, uh, the bold part of this slide is important. When I looked up faith in this five-volume Bible dictionary I have, it says the root of one of the words that makes this up is one referring to daughters carried at their mother's sides. It refers to places permanent uh, posts in the royal surface, to people which have Israel in perpetuity, to a variation of notions, all of which have the sense of firmness, stability, and confidence. The psalm, in using the images it used, is a psalm about faith. It's a psalm about mature faith in some way. And so that idea of in the psalm of the of the child being carried along by the mother, no longer nursing but weaned, is an image of this Hebrew word faith that, that refers to daughter carries at their mother's side. It's this way in which we sort of look at faith through this lens. And so I think this psalm brings us to a, a grand picture of what faith can be like. But the psalm begins with three sort of triple negatives. The first is my heart is not proud. The second is, my eyes are not haughty, and my mind, um, what is the, the, the actual word? I, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. So I draw a mind, if you can tell. Um, uh, that in some sense, I, I don't concern myself with things too wonderful or too great for me. But these three sort of negatives that start this, I think, are worthy challenge for us. Because in our world, and in most worlds, being proud and seeking the highest is the thing we're supposed to be after. We're supposed to push. We're supposed to go for more. We're supposed to keep seeking and seeking and seeking. I mean, there's there's this uh, pride in the Christian tradition is always sort of considered the first sin, too. Um, I remember after my ordination, I think it was Kelly, we were sitting around the dinner table, and me being Debbie Downer that I am, somebody said, are you proud that you've made it this far? And I said, pride is a sin. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I think there's this notion in which when we can take pride in something, when we can have sort of pride sort of on our mind and lips, it becomes this place where our downfall can begin. Pride sort of destroys what God has done for us. We think we're doing it on our own. We think we're making it by ourselves. And heart, I mean, we think of heart as like the, the seat of, of love. Um, the Hebrew word is more like the seat of emotions or even the seat of the will. My will is not proud. My heart is not proud. These are not the things that I go after. I don't do this on my own. Certainly, you could imagine the person that, that uh, somebody came to mind, but I don't want to talk about them, who looks at the butt print ones and they're like, oh, my whole life I've just walked by myself. Nobody's ever had to carry me. Um, it's not hard to imagine that person in the modern world. Um, not hard to imagine the need for dependence. 
being seen as a flaw, not hard to imagine the relationship to God. You can fill in your own blank for whoever that might be. My eyes are not haughty. This is, uh, my eyes don't look to higher places is kind of what it means. And one of the first instances about that is if your eyes look to higher places, if your eyes are lifted up, that means you look down at everybody else. Um, everybody else becomes somebody you look down upon. We imagine how both of these not only damage your relationship to God, but to damage your relationship to other people. My eyes are ambitious. My eyes are set after other places. Now in the Psalms, the eyes of ascent, the eyes have come up a couple times too, and that my eyes look to the hills. Where, do my help, where does my help come from? My eyes are not set on other gods and other places for my help. My eyes aren't looking for me to secure my own place. I mean, there's this way in which, like, you could maybe think if gods develop, dwell in the higher places in the ancient world, that some people think, well, I'll just descend to the higher places, my, or ascend to the higher places myself. There are no gods there. It's us. We ascend to the higher places. So I look and set my goals for the higher and pursue the higher and in that, I sort of disregard everything else. I try to make of myself a God who is on high. These are, it's hard because a lot of these things are seen as good in our world. I mean, I mentioned that already, but, but you know, ambition is good. Uh, what's the classic Wall Street line with uh, Michael Douglas? Greed is good. Um, and he says that right at the start of the movie. Has anybody seen that movie or am I the only one? Ray's seen it. Okay, few. Uh, greed is good is his starting line. But the idea is that, like, if you say greed is good, I think a lot of people can imagine a context where, like, well, that seems like a fine saying. Um, when in fact, that can be a way of setting our eyes, or is a way of setting our eyes on things that are higher for us. The last one that I have not concerned myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I love that Job reading that, was it Brian who read it during that part? It's the same Hebrew word there where Job, after his life has fallen apart, if you're not familiar with the story, um, his family's been taken to him from him, and he is sitting there uh, scarring his own body with clay jars, and his friends are giving him what seems like good advice. Um, and God then comes and questions him in the great King James language after Job has questioned God. So he says, Gird up your loins and I will question you. And God questions Job for about, ah, man, three or four chapters. Who were, where were you when I set these, these boundaries? Where were you when I taught the eagle to fly? Where were you when I did these things? Job, like I said, started in grief, started in, in this deep depression of having lost everything. He's sitting there in darkness. God questions him. And just questions him these things about where was he? How does he know this much about the world? And before God restores anything to him, before God tells him anything else, Job says, this has all been too wonderful for me. This has all been too great for me. That is, um, I think, what deals with the Psalms here, is that, is that we can set our minds on wonderful things thinking we know, thinking that it gives us a standing, thinking that it makes a place for us. But we don't set our eyes on those things, or when we do, we see that God is behind them. We see the truth of what's there. 
who can answer the ways for the world, the, the ways the world is, is beyond us. And so in Job's situation, who can answer for the fact that his life has fallen apart is only God, and yet he can't even answer the other questions surrounding him. It's interesting that God doesn't give an answer for why Job is suffering in that way, but only just a long list of questions. And it's questions that say, this is too wonderful for me. But I don't concern myself with great matters either. This is um, interesting because both the beasts in the book of Daniel and the beasts and these beasts are particularly good, in the book of Revelation, say that they do great matters. They do great things. And this is a big temptation, I think, for us in the modern world, to think to do great things is what we're called to do. To do great matters is what we're called to do. So I had the privilege of, of preaching at, um, teaching during the chapel time at Scarlark, the Christian school in town here this week. But I said, look, there's a chance that somebody might give a commencement speech to you that says, go out and build a kingdom. And I said, that's not a good speech. <laughs> that's not good for you. Um, because we don't build the kingdom. We witness to the kingdom that God is building through us. And the reason why I think that's important, and the kids all got this, is I said, because if we build the kingdom, we begin to think it's our kingdom, our place. We've done great things. But if we're invited in through Christ to witness to the work that he's done, to be for the kingdom, to have this way in which we're mirroring the great work that God has done, then it becomes something that God has still done. And so we have this ways in which we don't focus on great things, but that we can live in what God has done for us. But one of the points that I often make when it gets to... Um, Discussing how we are to be in the world is, I believe, in small things. So one of the most important essays, I think, and I've shared it a couple times here, uh, I've ever read is The Ethical Significance of the Trivial, which is a great essay by Stanley Horowitz, which argues that the smaller things, these things in which seem trivial, are actually where formation can take place, where good things can take place. But this week I was lucky. This, this essay, which I think is also great, Think Little by Wendell Berry, came out in its smaller form. And I want to read just a portion of it. To, to what does it mean to think little instead of think big in the modern world? I didn't put it up on the slides. So it's a blank one. If we, to, if we are to correct our abuses of each other and of other races and of our land, and if our effort to correct these abuses is to be more than a political fad that will in the long run only be another form of abuse, then we're going to have to go far beyond public protest and political action. We're going to have to rebuild the substance and the integrity of private life in this country. We're going to have to gather up the fragments of knowledge and responsibility that have parceled out to the bureaus and the corporations and the specialists and put those fragments back together in our own minds and in our families and households and neighborhoods. We need better government, no doubt, but we also need better minds better friendships, better marriages, better communities. We need persons and households that do not have to wait upon organizations, but can make necessary changes in themselves on their own. For most of the history of this country, our motto, implied or spoken, has been think big. Set your mind on great things, as I would say. A better motto, an essential one now, is think little. 
That implies that the necessary change of thinking and feeling would suggest the necessary work. Thinking big has led us to the two biggest and cheapest political dodges of our time, plan making and lawmaking. The lotus eaters of this era are in Washington, D.C., thinking big. Somebody perceives a problem and somebody in the government comes up with a plan or law. The result mostly has been the persistence of the problem and the enlargement and enrichment of the government. But the discipline of thought is not generalized. It is in the detail, and it is in personal behavior. While the government is studying and organizing its big thought, nothing is being done. But the citizen who is willing to think little and accepting the discipline of that, to go ahead on his own, is already solving the problem. A person who is trying to live as a neighbor to his neighbor will have likely and practical understanding of the work of peace and humanity together. And let there be no stake behind, they are doing good work. A couple who makes a good marriage and raise a healthy, morally confident children are serving the world's future more directly and surely than any political leader, though they may never utter a public word. A good farmer who is dealing with the problem of soil erosion on an acre of ground has a sounder grasp of that problem and cares more about it and is probably doing more to solve it than any bureaucrat who is talking about it in general. A person who is willing to undertake the discipline and with great difficulty of mending their own ways is worth more to the conservation movement than a hundred who are insisting that the government and industry mend their ways. What I like about that short reading and what this challenge is for us today is to stop concerning with great things. Wendell Berry obviously is skeptic of the government, and you'll have to trust him on that. But I do think his point on that we have to learn to build better societies on our own, to mend our own fences, to be good neighbors, to live together, is pertinent for our time. We all want to seek bigger and simpler solutions for our problems, but the actual way of loving my actual neighbor who lives next door to me is a deeper challenge. As this dog jumps into my yard, loves my dog, comes into my house. They make a noise at night that have these large parties. To love somebody on the other side of the world who I'm never going to meet often seems easier because I can't conceive of their sin. But if you know your neighbor, uh, both in the positive sense or in the negative sense, you know their sin to some degree. And that makes them a greater challenge to love them. Or to think about marriage. You know, if you're married, you know what makes that person hard to love. Not to quote Stanley Harawas again, but he is great. Uh, when he preaches at his students' wedding ceremonies, um, they often pick First Corinthians 13, as many people do, and he begins the sermon almost always with, Christians are required to love one another, even if they are married. <laughs> this, uh, because it's deep, hard work to do it locally. It's deep, hard work to do it in your own relationships and contexts. We're often distracted and think about the bigger things and focuses and problems and politics, and yet we can't deal with the nearness to us. But I think what this psalm is personally, in my opinion, much of scripture speaks to, well, and we know it in this commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, and I think he means your neighbor, is to love what's nearest to you. Or in the parable of the Good Samaritan, to love the one you find along the road who's been wounded and broken. Not to go and seek someplace else out, 
but to love the one that you come upon on your own journey. This psalmist has learned to think little in the faith and not to strive after greater and greater things. This brings us to, that, so that was the triple negatives, but then there's the positive half of the psalm. psalm. But I have calmed myself and quieted myself. I am like the weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child I am content. The psalm calls out this way in which the psalmist has learned to rest in God. The psalmist has learned to rest with this one. And so the phrase we used a couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, Psalm 127 and 128 was non-anxious presence, or as I abbreviated it, NAP, which I think is brilliant still, trademark. Um, uh, non-anxious presence is to be a non-anxious presence in the world. And so, so much of the world today is us chasing after other things, it's being reactive. And the great part, is, this is, I was learning more about non-anxious presences this week, is as they respond, they don't react. And so we have this way in which we're just mostly can live our lives reacting to everything in the 24-hour rage cycle that is our news system or whatever else you want to put into that box. We just live reactive, reactive lives. And the thing that Friedman, the one who did all this research on systems, organizations, and families suggests is that for good things to happen, for real change to happen in a system, whatever it is, is you need somebody who can lead from a non-anxious spot. Because anxiety makes you do things that you wouldn't normally do. It puts the bind on when there maybe is no bind at all. I mean, this is one of the great parts about working with not-for-profits over my life has been people are often trying to solve a problem that's not actually a problem. They just want to keep working, keep going, and so it takes somebody to reflect and say, do we really need to do that? I've joked in that work that my spiritual gift is vice president of common sense, which is like not much of a gift at all, but it's incredibly useful um, because common sense tends to go out the window when you let anxiety and other things dictate the day. But the psalmist has learned not to be driven like that, to be in a more solid place with this one who is carrying him or her. The psalmist is resting in this place. And it's not hard to think of, of the strength that can come out of that, to find yourself resting with God, of being near and being content. Of no longer looking to proud, no longer acting and seating yourself as a proud person. Because that's one of the things that um, a more corrupt person I know um, is always like, what's the other person want? Because you can use that to your leverage. Um, well, if you don't set your heart on proud things, it becomes a lot more calm for you to sit in the world. If you don't look up to howdy places, I mean, that's where also things, here's the deal I'll make with you. And incidentally, this is a great parenting strategy, is I see your eyes are set on that. If you want that, I will give you this. Um, and it works that way with adults, funny enough. But what happens is when we reset ourselves, we can move in a different way. And to not be concerned with great matters or things too wonderful us that are left for God. We can actually find ourselves living in the world in which we don't have to have the answer to everything. We don't have to know it all. It's, um, 
I forget who says it, but the Christianity can be the politics of living in the silences in a world full of noise. And in the silences, there can be weeping, there can be prayer, there can be comfort, there can be good things. Yet in the rush to do, 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 seek, 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 do more, we find ourselves just creating more of the same. And so for Christians, for Israel in this place, it's for us to put our hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. What Israel has learned in this story, in this psalm, is living in hope is having one with you who takes the care out of time and need. Living in hope is having one with you who takes the terror out of time and need. To be carried along is to take the terror out of time and need to one trusting in God this way. That the present time becomes less of a prison and more of something that which can be enjoyed and pondered and lived in. Israel joins this time of patience and trusting living up to a world that can exist in mystery and wonder rather than answers and seeking just the best. And then to hope in this way is to have hope outside of just relying on oneself. A child in this image, as you can see it blessed in there, is not one who's seeking for more, not just seeking to stand on its own, not just seeking to, to fend off everything by itself, but finding comfort in life. Resting in that place. It was in the Psalm 127, 128, where we talked about that they get the bread of anxiety, but the Lord gives rest to the ones he loves. For Christians, I, we made this point last time, but it's to be a people who can sleep, to go to bed resting in the end of the day, to move in a different way. We're playing off the acronym again. Christians can be people who take naps. Um, they can rest in a world that says do, 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 seek, 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 gain, gain, gain. And so this psalm for today, um, uh, it's on the back of the bulletin. What I thought is we had mentioned that um, Eugene Peterson had this way, he took one psalm uh, for each day of the week, and he prayed that most of his pastoral life. Um, and he tried to pick seven psalms that sort of made up most of the psalter, because there's about seven different types of psalms, give or take, or three, depending on who you ask. But anyways, this psalm is on the back of the bulletin for this week. And what I thought might be good for us for a time, as long as you want to do it, is to take this as your Monday morning and Monday evening psalm. Because everybody says, what is it, does somebody have a case of the moon days? And you just want to like take that person out of your office and tell them never to come back. Um, is to have this psalm set up your week can provide a way of rest. Provide a way of knowing that God carries you. To not go into Monday saying, I have to seek greater things. I have to be proud. I have to set my eyes higher. But to pray it in a way that resets our day and our space so that we can be with the God who carries us along. That we can't just have to make our lives. So I was going to try and make lines so you could just cut it out, but then Microsoft Publisher got the best of me, and so I lost. Um, chat's everywhere, isn't it? Um, but as we pray it, to think of what Charles Spurgeon told us about this at the beginning. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read. 
but one of the longest alone. May we be a people who through praying the Psalms, through walking the Psalms, through sitting with this one on Mondays for the time being for as long as we like, find that we can live in hope with the Lord, both now and forevermore. Let us pray. God, may our hearts not be proud, Lord. May our eyes not be haughty. May we not concern ourselves with great matters or things too wonderful for us. But may we find ourselves home and quiet. It is for us to be with you like a weaned child with its mother. To be like a weaned child with high, we are content. So church in Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Let's pray together the prayer that opened the service with John. O Christ, our lives and our world. Amen. Amen.